One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Jets at Bills. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43. Game Overview by Hilo. The playoff implications of this game are likely the highest of any game on the slate this week, with the Bills now in the top spot in the AFC after beating the Chiefs earlier this year, and tied at 9-3 with the Bills controlling their own destiny for the only bye out of the AFC, and the Jets clinging to the seventh and final playoff spot just one game ahead of the Patriots and Chargers. Most notable there, the Patriots beat the Jets twice this year, so they hold the head-to-head tiebreaker. The Jets are this week's virus host, with four players listed as DNP on Wednesday's injury report, most notably cornerback DJ Reed and wide receiver Corey Davis, both of whom are integral pieces to either side of the ball. The Jets running back Michael Carter found himself off the injury report entirely after missing week 13. Reports out of New York indicate rookie Zonovan Knight will maintain involvement out of the backfield. Jets wide receiver Garrett Wilson has seen 11.2 targets per game in non-Zach Wilson starts this season. For comparison, Devontae Adams leads the league in targets per game at 11.3. Both teams are top 13 in overall pass rate. Both teams rank in the top 5 in overall pace of play. Rookie running back James Cook is coming off his highest usage of his short NFL career, 20 running back opportunities, and is priced at only 4600 on DK. Almost more importantly, the Jets have filtered the 8th most targets to opposing backfields this season, fullback Reggie Gilliam missed practice on Wednesday with an ankle injury, and the Bills showcased 21 personnel usage last week through Cook and Naeem Hines in the red zone. How New York will try to win The Jets begin games near league average in pace of play and situational pass rate, but they have shown a willingness to open things up as the game progresses, with the third fastest pace of play in the second half, and 6th fastest pace of play when trailing by 7 or more points this season. The overall pass rate on the season sits near league average at 60.21%, but they are coming off a game that saw new starting quarterback Mike White attempt an ungodly 57 passes in his second game as the starter in a loss to the Vikings. As in, how New York will try to win and how New York will adjust are two very different games entirely, which is important to understand as they are currently listed at 9.5 point road underdogs. Furthermore, their offensive game plans have appeared to be tied to game environment less than matchup, as Robert Sala and the Jets have managed games very differently this season against various opponents and opponent strengths. This is also important to note considering the Bills are equally as difficult to run against as they are to pass against. The New York backfield has some significant moving pieces with the likely return of Michael Carter after a one-game absence. Looking at the macro state of this backfield, no single back has managed a snap rate over 56% since the season-ending injury to rookie Brees Hall, with Carter hitting that mark in Week 8, the first game without Hall, and rookie Zonovan Knight hitting 55% last week without Carter. Furthermore, the Jets have utilized a three-back rotation in every game since Week 8. While we don't know how the snap rates will shake out with Carter back in the fold, we can be fairly certain of two important aspects. One, Both Carter and Knight are unlikely to exceed 50-55% to of the offensive snaps, and two, recent addition James Robinson is likely to be the odd man out once again. That should leave Carter and Knight to handle the primary duties, likely each in the 40-45% to snap rate range, with Ty Johnson and his special team's involvement likeliest to soak up the remainder of the snaps at that position. The matchup on the ground yields one of the lowest net-adjusted line yards metrics we'll see all season at just 3.95. 
Rookie wide receiver Garrett Wilson now stands as the lone near every down pass catcher on this offense, handling the largest stat rate in every game since Week 7. Most notably, the big-bodied Corey Davis has held down the wide receiver 2 role for the Jets in recent weeks after the falling out between the team and Elijah Moore near the trade deadline. That's important because Davis is currently one of four starters dealing with an illness this week, presumably the same illness that has held players out or rendered them irrelevant in other spots around the league this season. We'll have to wait and see how Davis progresses this week before making sweeping declarations, but we should expect Denzel Mims to be the player to see the largest jump in snap rate and opportunities should Davis miss or be limited. The Jets' personnel alignments have varied based on game environment and opponent this season, with elevated 12 personnel rates in games where they are allowed to run at heightened rates and 11 personnel the base in pass-heavy environments. That has primarily influenced blocking tight end CJ Uzama and Elijah Moore's snap rates during the second half of the season. Primary pass-catching tight end Tyler Conklin has been between 67 and 81% snap rates in each game since Week 3, yielding a rather tight range of expected usage. Finally, and shout-out to Zandemir here, Garrett Wilson has been a completely different player with Zach Wilson at quarterback and without Zach Wilson at quarterback, basically transforming into wide receiver one without Wilson this season. Furthermore, Garrett Wilson's 11.2 targets per game in non-Zach Wilson starts would rank second in the league behind only Devontae Adams at 11.3 per game if extrapolated over the whole season. Yeah, extrapolation alert. How Buffalo will try to win. The Bills maintain their offensive game plan almost regardless of opponent or game environment, coming into week 14 with the second highest pass rate over expectation and an above average overall pass rate. They've also played the league's fastest pace of play in the first half and fourth fastest with the game within six points. Josh Allen has attempted 33 or more passes in four of their previous five games, with the only outlier coming against the Browns and their bottom feeder run defense. While the Jets boast one of the better pass defenses in the league, the big picture is that their run defense is amongst the top in the league as well, and typically we've seen the Bills err on the side of aerial aggression in all but the softest run matchups. When combined with the elevated combined pace of play between these two teams, it should leave Josh Allen in the 34-38 pass attempt range as his likeliest scenario, with room for more depending on game environment. After seeing 72% or more of the offensive snaps in each of the previous six games, Devin Singletary saw his snap rate fall to just 44% in Week 13. Both rookie James Cook and newcomer Naeem Hines saw their respective snap rates skyrocket in that contest, and the team even showcased multiple looks with both pass-catching backs on the field together, particularly in the red zone. Also of note, fullback Reggie Gilliam missed practice on Wednesday with an ankle injury, potentially opening up further opportunities for the pass-catching duo against the Jets. While we have all of a one-game sample size with a reduced role for Singletary, it is notable that Cook led the team in running back opportunities with 20 against the similarly stingy Patriots run defense. The pure rushing matchup yields a well below average 4.16 net adjusted line yards metric, albeit against a Jets defense that has filtered 87 targets to opposing backfields this season, 7.25 per game, 8th most in the league. That could be extremely important on this slate considering Cook is priced all the way down at 4600 as in, 20 running back opportunities at a basement-level price feels an awful lot like the running back days of old. Not much needs to be said of this pass offense that hasn't already been laid out in this space this season, but we'll do a quick recap. Stefan Diggs is in a route only 88.1% of pass plays for the Bills, but has seen an absolutely elite 32% targets per route run rate. Gabriel Davis is the closest thing the Bills have to an every-down pass catcher, but averages only 6 targets per game at the league's 4th deepest ADOT. 
Isaiah McKenzie is a situational and matchup-dependent wide receiver with wild swings in both snap rate and usage this season. Rookie wide receiver Khalil Shakir operates as the wide receiver four, but has seen more than two targets just once all season. Finally, tight end Dawson Knox is in a route at a 75.8% clip, but has a grotesque 13.7% targets per route run rate and modest 6.8 ADOT. Most notable here is the matchup with a Jets defense that has faced an 8.6 defensive ADOT, top five deepest in the league, as they are capable of generating organic pressure up front without having to blitz and are able to settle into zone coverages at an elevated rate. Stefan Diggs and Isaiah McKenzie are this team's zone beaters, with the added caveat that McKenzie and the running back position are interesting chess pieces for the Bills to potentially utilize at increased rates through the air against this specific opponent. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest we see the Bills assert control over the game environment sooner rather than later. They quite simply just have so many varying paths to do so, whether it be with their top offense or their top defense. And while both the Bills' offensive success and the Jets' offensive success are not tied to game environment, it does give us a good idea of where the volume is likeliest to flow for each team, the passing game. As we covered above, both the Bills and Jets have tailored their offensive design more to game environment than matchup this season, with the Bills likeliest to pass regardless of matchup, and the Jets likeliest to pass when not in control of the game environment, which is likely to be the case here. That presents an interesting setup for the offensive skill position players in this game, most notably Garrett Wilson. While Garrett Wilson's ADOT sits at a modest 9.6 this season, it jumps up to 10.3 against zone coverage, which the Bills primarily run. Wilson also holds a solid 71.8% reception rate against zone and PFF's 12th highest rating against that primary coverage this season amongst qualified wide receivers. Considering the high combined pace of play between these two teams, Wilson stands out as a solid bet to surpass double-digit looks in a matchup that plays well to his skill set. Browns at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 46.5. Game Overview by Hilo. This one carries a fairly wide range of potential outcomes, primarily due to Deshaun Watson and how poor he looked last week. The Bengals have shifted their defensive scheme over the previous month of play, moving away from increased man coverage rates and towards a defense based primarily from zone coverages. Joe Mixon started the practice week as a full participant coming off his concussion. Bengals tight end Hayden Hurst has already been labeled as doubtful with a calf injury by head coach Zach Taylor. How Cleveland will try to win. There are a few different ways to look at the Browns' performance in Deshaun Watson's first game as the starting quarterback. For one, the Browns controlled the game with their defense against a far inferior opponent in the Texans, which allowed them to ride their run game for most of the game, 22 Watson pass attempts to 38 combined team rush attempts. Watson looked as rusty as one might expect in his first NFL game action in almost two calendar years, making errant throws appear part of his job title. When you complete just four of nine passes to Amari Cooper, who could not be a better route runner, it tells of just how poorly you played. Watson was throwing five-yard in-routes and slants into Cooper's feet. Another notable piece is that the Browns' defense generated four turnovers and scored three defensive touchdowns, which is highly unlikely to be the case against one of the top offenses in the league. Finally, the team was without a primary piece of the offense in David Njoku, yet they still called an offensive game plan with multiple instances of pre-snap motion, jet sweeps, and guided misdirection via the threat of a mobile quarterback. As in, there is upside from this offense once Watson settles into the speed of the NFL game again. Finally, the return of Demetric Felton to the lineup allowed the team to return to a unit based out of 21 personnel, 
which allowed them to move Felton all over the formation and adds to the dynamism of the offense. Felton's increased snap rate was also amplified by the in-game injuries to rookie wide receiver David Bell and wide receiver 4 Anthony Schwartz, who suffered a concussion and was placed on IR. More on this later. I would expect this team to operate primarily from heavy personnel alignments as the season draws to an end, with increased 21 personnel usage and moderate 12 personnel usage with the return of David Njoku. For all the perceived struggles this team has had this season, they currently find themselves in the thick of the playoff race in the AFC. As in, expect them to be fighting tooth and nail against their division rivals here. Lead back Nick Chubb has just two games all season with more than a 55% snap rate, 59% in Week 12 and 63% in Week 13, which is further highlighted by the return of Demetric Felton, who the team can move all over the formation when on the field. Felton is a running back by trade, but the team has been able to flex him to the slot and out wide, adding a layer of uniqueness to the offense. Felton's ultimate snap rate this week is likely tied directly to the health of David Bell, who is listed as limited on the team's Wednesday injury report. While Chubb has five games with more than 20 running back opportunities, his pass game involvement is low, and the Browns just played in the top matchup for running backs in the league and still only fed him 17 carries in a game they were able to run about the league average offensive plays, 63. Basically, Chubb should continue having to get there through efficiency and multiple touchdowns, which is a tough bet at his current price tag, 7,800. Kareem Hunt should continue as the primary change of pace and clear passing down option in the backfield, with the previous discussion on Demetric Felton in consideration as well. The pure rushing matchup yields a slightly above average 4.47 net adjusted line yards metric against a Bengals defense holding opposing backs to just 4.12 yards per carry this season. As noted previously, the departure of David Bell after just three offensive snaps last week put this team in a bind, forcing running back Demetric Felton into increased wide receiver snaps which is notable considering now-injured Anthony Schwartz had operated as the team's wide receiver four. The Browns are expecting lead tight end David Njoku back this week, which is likely going to lead to increased heavy personnel alignments. Njoku has been in and out of the lineup since week seven, but he played 80% or more of the offensive snaps in each of the first six games of the season as a true all-around tight end. Both Amari Cooper and Donovan Peoples-Jones are the clear top wide receivers with Cooper's role transitioning back to a short to intermediate one in Week 13 with Watson at quarterback. I would tentatively expect that micro trend to continue as Watson works his way back to game speed, with Cooper and Njoku the likeliest to see the most volume for the foreseeable future as the two players most capable of winning within the first five yards of the line of scrimmage. Finally, after the Bengals started the season, running man coverages at an above-league average rate in six of their first eight games, they have now been below league average in each of the previous four weeks. Amari Cooper has long been regarded as one of the top wide receivers in the league against man coverage, but has been around league average in reception grades against zone over the previous three seasons. All of that to say, the combination of personnel available, matchup, and individual skill sets set up well for Njoku to see increased involvement this week, and the numbers support the notion that Njoku is the top-rated pass catcher on this offense against zone coverages this season. How Cincinnati will try to win. The Bengals have worked their way up to fourth overall in pass rate over expectation this season, PROE, which can be best summed up through their recent trends. Over the last four weeks of play, the Bengals ranked third in PROE, all of which were wins. The last time these two teams played, week eight, the Bengals were adjusting to life without Jamar Chase. Week eight was his first missed game with a hip injury and still threw 35 passes against just 10 rush attempts. To be fair, they were trailing 25 nothing at half. 
That said, Zach Taylor and this Bengals offense have turned the proverbial corner as they've worked through what works for them and what doesn't, and the pass game is clearly what gives them the most upside and best chances to win games. There really isn't much to be gleaned from looking at their pace of play as it seemingly makes zero sense. 31st ranked pace when trailing by 7 or more, 18th ranked first half pace, and 25th ranked second half pace. But the team has been at or above league average in offensive plays run from scrimmage in each of their previous 5 games and in 10 of their total 12 games played. Their offense is designed to run best from 11 personnel, which makes the return of Jamar Chase that much more important to their expected offensive success and also makes the likely absence of tight end Hayden Hurst less important. Chase returned from a four-game absence to an 82% snap rate, which theoretically has room to increase in his second game back from injury. All told, this is a pass-first offense that operates from 11 personnel at its core. Joe Mixon has missed each of the last two weeks in the concussion protocol, but returned to a full practice on Wednesday ahead of Week 14. While I still haven't seen confirmation that he's cleared all five steps of the league's concussion protocol, I'd put his chances of returning this week at high to extremely high. That should return Samaj Pirine to a strict change of pace role considering Mixon's affliction was a concussion and not associated with any ligament, bone, or major muscle group. And while the matchup on the ground is a good one, borderline elite 4.71 net adjusted line yards metric against a defense allowing 5.11 yards per running back carry, the identity of this team recently continues to favor the pass. The Browns are extremely poor against the run while league average and completion rate allowed, yards allowed per pass attempt, yak allowed, and defensive ADOT, but below league average and yards allowed per completion. The aerial game is where things get fun for the Bengals, with Joe Burrow having eclipsed 35 pass attempts in 9 of 12 games so far this season. Since we can confidently project the vast majority of that volume to flow through three primary pass catchers, there is a lot to like here from an upside standpoint. Jamar Chase is the clear leader in the clubhouse, responsible for a 27.5% team target market share and an absolutely bonkers level elite 32.6% red zone target market share. To highlight how crazy his red zone role has been, Chase currently ranks 7th in red zone targets while missing 4 games. His 3.8 average yards after the catch per target is 0.5 per target more than Tyree Kill, who leads the league in yards after the catch. This dude is elite. The Browns play some of the highest rates of zone coverages this season, and while Chase's receiving grades aren't as elite this year against zone, he's fresh off a season where he went for 1,073 yards and 6 touchdowns against only zone coverage in 2021. Yeah, that's a more than solid year for just about anyone, and he did it against only zone coverage last season. T. Higgins maintains an every-down role in the offense, but holds a modest 23.3% targets per route run rate, 19.8% team target market share, and 14.5% red zone target share. Tyler Boyd holds similarly modest numbers for the season as well, 15.2%, 14.9%, 12.7% respectively. Finally, Bengals running backs garner a significant market share through the air as well, having been targeted 99 times this season, 5th most in the league. Expect blocking tight end Mitchell Wilcox to see the most snaps at the tight end position, likely utilized more in line than in routes. Likeliest Game Flow Regardless of how Deshaun Watson looked in his first game in almost two calendar years last week, he still brings immense dual-threat upside and is likely going to be needed much more this week when compared to last week. That said, Bengals head coach Zach Taylor has made some boneheaded in-game situational decisions during his tenure, but he remains one of the sharper game planners in the league. Since the Browns now possess increased offensive upside with the return of Watson and Njoku, 
in addition to their above-average run game, and since the Bengals are currently fighting for the right to play their first playoff game at home, it stands to reason that Taylor will approach this game with an air of urgency offensively. The Browns have shown us all season that they are willing to open up their offense when required, 8th fastest second half pace of play and 7 of 11 Jacoby Brissett starts with 34 or more pass attempts, including games of 37, 41, and 45 attempts. There are certainly paths to this game being one of the top game environments on the slate this week. The obvious caveat to that is that most of it hinges on Deshaun Watson and his ability to go toe-to-toe with the vaunted Bengals pass offense. That said, the driving force behind the game environment should be the Bengals here, who have operated with the league's third-highest PROE over the previous month of play. Texans at Cowboys. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 44. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Houston's offense has scored over 20 points only once all season. The Cowboys' offense has been averaging 37 points per game since Dak Prescott returned from injury. Both teams prefer to build their offensive attack on the ground and have solid on-paper matchups in that regard. This game could get out of hand very quickly, given the efficiency of the Dallas offense and the strength of their pass rush. How Houston will try to win Houston is reportedly going back to Davis Mills as their quarterback after a failed two-week experiment with journeyman Kyle Allen under center. It will likely make little difference on the road against a defense that leads the league in combined sacks plus turnovers. The Texans' offense has scored more than 20 points exactly once this year, and a matchup on the road against an elite defense doesn't seem like a spot where they are likely to have the second such occurrence. In theory, the Texans would prefer to keep this game low-scoring and attack the Cowboys on the ground. Damian Pierce is their offensive centerpiece when games are close and even managed 18 carries in last week's big loss to the Browns. The Texans are also middle of the pack in tempo and pace this year and are sure to bleed the clock as much as possible to keep the Cowboys' high-powered offense off the field as much as they can. The Cowboys have the number one DVOA pass defense by Football Outsiders, while ranking 23rd in the NFL in yards per rush attempt allowed, another data point that points us towards a healthy dose of run plays from the Texans. Now that Davis Mills is back under center, the Texans' passing game should become slightly more efficient than it was with Allen, but facing a Cowboys pass rush that leads the NFL in sacks behind an offensive line that ranks bottom 10 in adjusted sack rate is a recipe for disaster. We should expect a very conservative, quick-hitting approach from the Texans on the rare occasions they do drop back to pass early in this game. However, with the Cowboys' offense likely to thrive, the Texans may have no choice but to open things up much earlier than they would like. How Dallas Will Try to Win The Cowboys are on quite the tear. In the six games since Dak Prescott returned from injury, they have averaged 37.2 points per game, with three games over 40. The Cowboys lean heavily on their running game using both Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard frequently, with Dak Prescott operating at insane efficiency lately as the Cowboys' offense has been humming for well over a month now. As a matter of fact, Prescott has attempted over 30 passes only once this season, in a 31-28 overtime loss to the Packers in Week 10. In this matchup with the Texans, the Cowboys should be able to do pretty much whatever they want. While the Texans' defense looked solid against the Browns last week and Deshaun Watson's return, They gave up a combined 50 first-half points in their two games prior to that against the Dolphins and Commanders. Given the efficiency with which this Cowboys offense is operating, we should expect a lot of offensive success from the outset of this game. The Cowboys have a plethora of talent in the receiving game, yet have the fourth lowest pass rate in the NFL. The Texans' run defense ranks bottom five in almost any metric you can find, and the Cowboys are likely to impose their will early in this game, by leaning primarily on their talented running back duo, 
with some calculated, high-efficiency passes mixed in. Likeliest Game Flow Cowboys are very likely to control this game early on. The best chance of the Texans keeping things close would be early turnovers by the Cowboys and success in the running game for Houston. However, Dallas has been excellent at taking care of the ball this year and has made very few mistakes. It seems rather unlikely that they would start having issues with sacks and turnovers against a bottom-tier Texans defense. Rather, the Dallas offense has a high probability of putting up points every time they touch the ball. While the tendency of both teams to run the ball when they can will likely lead to a relatively slow start to the game, and possibly the first half, the Cowboys should gradually build a lead that forces more aggressiveness from Houston and lets the Dallas pass rush go to work. As weird as it sounds, the 31-point implied team total for Dallas might be a little conservative, considering their recent scoring efficiency and the fact that the Dolphins dropped 30 first-half points on the Texans in a similar spot just two weeks ago. You could easily argue that the Cowboys' offense is more balanced and consistent while also having a more ferocious defense, so a similar start to this game is well within reach, with the potential of things really getting off the rails in the second half as they did for the Colts in last Sunday night's 54-19 Cowboys victory. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Vikings at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 51.5. Game Overview by Hilo. The marquee matchup of the slate, the only game with a game total north of 50 points, and only one of two games with a total over 45. The Lions have surprisingly been in the top 10 in pass rate over expectation over the previous month of play, while the Vikings rank 8th over the entire season and 7th over the previous month. The Vikings and Lions rank 7th and 8th respectively in situation-neutral pace of play. Minnesota starts games fast, 8th and first half pace of play, while Detroit finishes games fast, 7th and second half pace of play. The Lions have been far more effective at scoring points at home this season, for whatever reason. It can't be that Ford Field is the Coors Field of the NFL, putting up a gaudy 31.9 points per game at home compared to just 18.4 on the road, the largest such split in the NFL. Basically, the Lions turn into the Chiefs at home or something. Five members of the Vikings' defense missed practice on Wednesday with the dreaded illness sweeping the league, including three members of the secondary. I don't know if he suffered a setback in the Week 13 game or what the deal is. Uh, there hasn't been a single rumbling from beat reporters or Detroit staff, but DeAndre Swift found his way back onto the Lions' injury report on Wednesday as he was listed as limited with his ankle. How Minnesota will try to win. The formula hasn't changed much for the Vikings this season, who have been hovering near the top of the league in pass rate over expectation and overall pass rate the entire season. They currently rank 8th in pass rate over expectation and 3rd in overall pass rate, 63.14%, with quarterback Kirk Cousins finishing at or above 35 pass attempts 9 times in 12 games, including games of 50, 46, 46, 41, and 40. While the passing volume has become a welcome development, the offense overall operates primarily to the short to intermediate areas of the field, with Cousins' average intended air yards value 7.1, sandwiched among guys like Davis Mills, Jared Goff, and Jimmy Garoppolo. Even Justin Jefferson's elite fantasy season is coming through a modest 10.7 ADOT. He does possess an elite 29.2% red zone target share and leads the league in red zone looks for an offense that leans pass heavy where it matters. 
Regardless, this has meant that the Vikings have largely been reliant on sustained drives and individual talent to generate splash plays. They rank 22nd in splash plays through the air this year, with just 19 through 12 games, and a middle-of-the-pack drive success rate has kept them with a, probably less than it should be, 24.1 points per game value. Delvin Cook has commanded a robust 75% or more of the offensive snaps in six of the Vikings' last seven games, averaging 22 running back opportunities in those six games. He saw only 12 in the 40-3 drubbing at the hands of the Cowboys in Week 11. The problem hasn't been Alexander Madison or a lack of opportunities. The problem has been a 27th-ranked yards per touch value of 4.8 and decreased efficiency behind an offensive line generating just 4.36 adjusted line yards, which Minnesota backs are matching in their yards per carry value this season. Dalvin has gone over 100 yards rushing and scored, or scored multiple touchdowns, just three times this season, which corresponds to his only three games of more than 16.3 DK points. Furthermore, he has exactly zero games of 4x salary multiplier fantasy output at his current and depressed price point of 7300 He came close once. The matchup on the ground yields a slightly above average 4.455 net adjusted line yards metric against the Detroit defense allowing 4.74 yards per carry and 21.8 DK points per game to opposing backfields. While the defensive numbers against the run are nothing special for the Lions, they have quite simply been so easy to pass on, faced 34.5 pass attempts per game and a robust 11.4 yards allowed per completion, the latter of which ranks 30th in the league, that teams continue hunting for chunk yardage gains. The Vikings have been around 20% 12 personnel usage since they brought over TJ Hawkinson from, checks notes, the Lions at the trade deadline, mixing in about 12% 21 personnel usage as well since that time. That has primarily dented K.J. Osborne and Adam Thielen's snap rates slightly, with Osborne seeing the biggest change in usage. Jefferson maintains the Cooper Cup role for Kevin O'Connell's offense, seeing 11 or more targets in 8 of 12 games played. Regardless of what happened in the previous matchup between these two teams, Justin Jefferson remains one of the highest upside pass catchers on the slate. Surprise, Jefferson put up a whopping 4.4 fantasy points in their first meeting. Adam Thielen and TJ Hawkinson have traded off games of fantasy relevance since Hawk joined the fray, with neither providing a can't-miss score on relatively short area rolls. How Detroit will try to win. Somehow, some way, the Lions turn into the Chiefs when playing at home. I have no clue what they're feeding these boys down at Ford Field, but good lord is it working. The Lions have averaged a paltry 18.4 points per game on the road this season, and an insane 31.9 points at home. For comparison, the Chiefs averaged 29.2 points per game on the season, which is tops in the league. Furthermore, the standard narrative from Detroit involves a reactive game plan and increased aggression as the game moves on. While not necessarily completely false, we have seen increased aggression over the previous month or so, most of which has come intrinsically, as in, they haven't been as reliant on the opponent to dictate the game environment. Over the last month of play, the Lions have gone 3-1, with the only loss coming to the Bills by 3 points after late-game heroics from both sides, while holding a top-10 pass rate over expectation value. Whether it suddenly became clear to head coach Dan Campbell that the Lions would need to score points to win games, or it has been a byproduct of injuries along the offensive line remains unknown, but the Lions are doing things a bit differently these days. DeAndre Swift made it all of one week off the injury report before being added back with his ankle injury. 
There have been no reports from beat reporters nor from the team on whether he suffered a setback or if this is strictly related to maintenance, so keep an eye on his level of involvement as the week progresses. That said, Swift has put up 21.1 fantasy points or more in only two games where he was off the injury report entirely this season and has not cracked 16.7 fantasy points in any of the other seven games he's played. Jamal Williams has helped pick up the slack admirably, leading the league with 14 rushing scores on the season, but has gone over 100 yards just once all season, and it took the longest rush of his career, 51 yards, to get there. Justin Jackson should also remain involved after having played 21% or more of offensive snaps in every healthy game since week 5. The pure rushing matchup yields an above-average 4.465 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Minnesota defense holding opposing backfields to just 3.87 yards per carry this season, sixth lowest in the NFL. It appears as if Dan Campbell and his staff finally realize that the path to their team winning games likely flows through the air, as the Lions hold the 10th highest pass rate over expectation value over the previous month of play. Furthermore, they have arrived at that value by being more aggressive on early downs, not simply reacting to what their opponents force them to do. What is left to say about Amon Ross St. Brown that hasn't already been said? The dude is the truth. He currently holds the second highest targets per route run rate in the league at 33.8% and averages a robust 3.7 yards after the catch per reception, which lands just behind Justin Jefferson on the other side of this game. The wide receiver two role and the primary downfield role for this team has returned to DJ Chark, who worked his way back up to an 84% snap rate last week after playing 73% of the offensive snaps the week before. Josh Reynolds returned to form last week with an 80% snap rate in his second game back from injury, while the offense has transitioned away from increased 12 personnel rates to a unit based from 11 personnel following the departure of TJ Hawkinson. Over the past five games, the Lions have played three teams with run defenses in the bottom 10 and two defenses in the league's top half in yards allowed per carry, the Bills and Jaguars. Jared Goff attempted 26 passes in each of the three games against bottom 10 units, but attempted 37 and 41 pass attempts in the two games against top half rush defenses. The Vikings currently rank 6th in yards allowed per carry. As in, the Lions have been inclined to attack an opponent's weaknesses during their hot stretch, which is very much through the air against the Vikings. Likeliest Game Flow Although it is likeliest this game sees some fireworks, the path to a true blowup actually comes through the Lions and their increased scoring when playing at home. The Lions are typically thought of as a reactive team when it comes to in-game management and adjustments, but they've been 10th in pass rate over expectation over the previous four games and have put some games away recently with mega wins over the Giants and Jaguars. That isn't to say the Vikings cannot succeed offensively without the Lions pushing them, just that the path to this game environment, far surpassing all others on the slate, likely comes from the Vikings being forced into more downfield aggression than they would otherwise like. Hello game against the Bills from a couple of weeks ago. Either way, expect some scoring to take place here, which we will likely need to account for in some fashion on our rosters in play this week. Eagles at Giants. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Dallas Goddard remains on injured reserve and will miss week 14, but appears likely to return when first eligible next week. Quez Watkins reportedly endured an AC joint sprain in week 13, but was listed as limited on the team's estimated practice report Wednesday, and he appears likely to play against the Giants. The Giants continued to be banged up in the secondary, with week 14 likely to mark the third different combination of starting corners in the last three weeks. 
Wink Martindale continues to employ elevated blitz rates, highest in the league at over 40%, and increased usage of man coverage schemes, the highest rate at over 50%, not ideal against a mobile quarterback and pass catchers that excel against man. The likeliest scenario for the game environment and flow has a tighter range of outcomes than most other spots on the slate and what we've seen around the league this season. How Philadelphia will try to win. Vic Sirianni proved last week that this team can win in many different ways on offense, jumping from a neutral pass rate over expectation to the second highest rate of the week behind only the Dolphins against an opponent clearly presenting a pass funnel matchup in the Titans. Philadelphia has played to the fastest pace of play with the score within six points and the third fastest pace of play in the first half, but have also played at the third slowest pace of play in the second half of games this season, indicating a willingness to take their foot off the proverbial gas and slow things down when in control of the game environment. The majority of their offensive snaps have come from 11 personnel in the absence of tight end Dallas Goddard, which has primarily meant an increased snap rate for wide receiver Quez Watkins, who failed to finish the contest in Week 13 after coming down with an AC joint sprain. The Eagles only held a walkthrough on Wednesday, but it appears the injury concerns were short-lived as he was listed as a limited participant on the team's estimated injury report. The Giants present an interesting matchup defensively, as the typical run-funnel nature of their defense has become equally poor against the pass due to recent injuries to their secondary, which should allow the Eagles to remain run-balanced here. The Philadelphia backfield has reverted to a three-headed timeshare since the team's Week 7 bye, with lead back Miles Sanders playing no more than 65% of the offensive snaps in any game over that time. Change of pace and obvious passing down back Kenneth Gainwell has maintained a steady involvement during that span, typically held between 25 and 35% of the offensive snaps, meaning any dip in snap rate seen from Sanders has directly correlated to increased run for rotational back Boston Scott, who has typically seen his work increase in blowouts. Basically, consider Sanders the lead back, but one that would likely see a hard cap in volume due to game environment, with Gainwell and Scott on hand to handle any change of pace environment-driven volume in games the Eagles are able to control. That has kept Sanders to 17 running back opportunities or fewer in all but one game since the team's Week 7 bye. The shootout with the Packers in Week 12 was the only exception, where he saw 24 opportunities. Furthermore, quarterback Jalen Hurts has seen double-digit carries in half of the team's game this season, 6 of 12, and has scored 9 rushing touchdowns through 12 games. The matchup on the ground yields a well-above-average 4.69 net-adjusted line yards metric against the Giants' defense allowing a robust 5.11 yards per carry to opposing backfields. Finally, the aggressive blitz tendencies found in a Wink-Martindale defense could force additional scrambles from Jalen Hurts in addition to opening up a susceptibility to yards after the catch whilst in man coverage. As mentioned earlier, the Giants are contending with multiple injuries amongst their primary contributors in the secondary, which is likely to force the unit into a third consecutive game with different starting personnel on the back end. Their aggressive blitz tendencies have also made their defense susceptible to yards after the catch and a heightened defensive ADOT, third deepest at 8.8. Both of those data points are a boost to the primary possession pass catcher on the Eagles offense in Devonta Smith, who has seen his role change the most in the absence of tight end Dallas Goddard. Expect a slight uptick to his volume in this matchup. Quez Watkins has also seen a slight change in role without Goddard, whose primary downfield role has added some work around the line of scrimmage as the team attempts to get the ball into his hands in space. Expect an offense based from 11 personnel with added ball-out-quick principles against the aggressive blitz tendencies from the Giants. 
Finally, the Giants lead the league in man coverage rate, running man above 50% of the time in every game since week three. A.J. Brown has absolutely demolished man coverages throughout his career, most notably receiving PFF's fifth highest grade against man coverages this season amongst qualified pass catchers and scoring the most touchdowns against this alignment. How New York will try to win. The Giants continue to manage game environments into the fourth quarter and beyond, where they look to find themselves within a score late into the game and capitalize on late errors from their opponents as they try and steal wins. Their Week 13 overtime tie against the Commanders was the epitome of this game plan, as Brian Dayball knew the Giants would play the Commanders again just two weeks later, with the winner of the divisional series likely to secure one of the final playoff spots out of the NFC. Dayball played a conservative fourth quarter and overtime, leading to the tie. Basically, he effectively took his weekly game plan and translated it to his season, not wanting to make any mistakes that could cost his squad a playoff berth and kicking the proverbial can down the road to another possession, or game. As such, the Giants have been one of the more reactive teams in the league from a game management perspective this season, which will play into the likeliest game flow that we will discuss further. Saquon Barkley maintains the highest snap rate and opportunity share in the league this season, having played 82.3% of the team's offensive snaps and handling 84% of the team's available running back opportunities. And while his receiving workload has seen a slight uptick during the second half of the season, five or more targets in four of his last five games, he has not put up more than 18 receiving yards since week 7, over just 18 yards receiving in 4 of 12 games, indicating that the majority of his receiving usage falls into the realm of low upside checkdowns instead of a schemed usage through the air. Matt Breida operates as the clear change of pace back and should handle the majority of offensive snaps not thrust onto Barkley's shoulders, nor is he scored through the air. The pure rushing matchup yields an average 4.34 net adjusted line yards metric, against a Philadelphia defense right around league average in yards allowed per running back carry this season. Rookie tight end Daniel Bellinger returned from a five-week absence in Week 13 to play the most snaps of any New York pass catcher, 97%, with wide receiver Darius Slayton, the only other pass catcher to surpass an 80% snap rate last week. The Giants' pass-catching core remains in rough shape, with Slayton, journeyman Richie James, and recent addition Isaiah Hodgins continuing to operate as the primary wide receivers from 11 personnel. Furthermore, quarterback Daniel Jones has attempted more than a modest 31 passes just twice since week four, which both came in eventual losses to the Lions, 44, and the Cowboys, 35. Slayton should be the odds-on favorite to lead the team in targets and receiving on a standard week as the only near-every-down wide receiver, while all of Bellinger, James, and Hodgins have yet to see more than six targets in a game this season, leaving this pass offense firmly entrenched in the modest volume and upside realm. Likeliest Game Flow The problem with elevated blitz rates and increased utilization of man coverage is that it becomes easy to game plan against, with teams knowing full well that the Giants are going to run man coverage over 50% of the time and blitz on most obvious passing downs. That has to have Nick Sirianni and Jalen Hurts licking their chops here and should also provide a likeliest scenario where the Eagles find themselves in familiar territory as far as the game environment goes. The likeliest scenario leaves the Eagles likely to achieve offensive success in the first half. Remember, this is a team that leads the league in first-half scoring with both a mobile quarterback and pass catchers that crush man coverage, which should allow the team to control the pace, time of possession, and flow in the second half. That limits the expected volume and usage for leadback Miles Sanders and increases the likelihood that the overall volume is sapped away from the game as the Eagles have shown the propensity to slow things down in the second half of games that they control this season. Basically, 
Sirianni and the Eagles get the opportunity to generate a game plan for an opponent that hasn't shown either the ability nor the desire to alter their defensive scheme this season, which constricts the range of outcomes from the game environment overall. As in, the likeliest scenario is a little more likely than other spots around the league this week. That is likely to place the Giants in uncomfortable territory as a team that likes to manage the game environment into the fourth quarter, opening up the possibility of increased chances for mistakes. The Ravens at the Steelers kick off Sunday, December 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 36.5. Game Overview by Hilo Lamar Jackson suffered a sprained PCL which forced him from last week's contest against the Broncos. The typical recovery time for that injury is one to three weeks, making it likely we see backup quarterback Tyler Huntley get the start for the Ravens. Mark Andrews averaged a 31% target market share and just under 100 yards per game, scoring three touchdowns in the five games with Huntley as the starter last season. It will be interesting to see how the Ravens choose to attack here. On the one hand, the fact that they are likely to start their backup quarterback would point to increased rush rates. But on the other hand, the Steelers present a pass-funnel matchup, allowing the sixth lowest yards per carry, but most yards per pass this season. Steelers running back Najee Harris missed practice on Wednesday, but did the same in Week 13 before playing 66% of the offensive snaps. I tentatively expect him to play here. How Baltimore will try to win There are a significant number of unknowns surrounding how the Ravens are likeliest to try to win here. The matchup clearly points to the potential for increased pass attempts against a pass-funnel Steelers defense, but the team will likely be starting their backup quarterback and have been neutral in pass rate over expectation over the previous month of play. We also just saw Tyler Huntley enter Week 13 in the first quarter in relief of Lamar Jackson and attempt 32 passes against a run-funnel opponent in the Broncos. Furthermore, the Ravens currently sit at 8-4 and and in first place in the AFC North with five games left to play, with their final game of the season likely to decide whether it is Baltimore or Cincinnati that play their first game of the playoffs at home. The two teams play in Week 18 after Baltimore took the first meeting. Tyler Huntley played more than 80% of the offensive snaps on five separate occasions in 2021 and finished with 31 or more pass attempts in each instance. 31, 32, 36, 38, and 40. And finally, the Ravens have been able to run above-league average number of offensive plays in each of their previous six contests while playing at one of the slowest paces in the league, likeliest due to a 7th-ranked net drive success rate on the year. The Ravens' backfield carries little to no certainty with Gus Edwards back in the fold, as each of Edwards, Kenyon Drake, Justice Hill, and fullback Patrick Rickard played 24% or more of the team's offensive snaps a week ago. Furthermore, quarterback Tyler Huntley averaged nine carries per game in the five games that he played more than 80% of the offensive snaps a year ago before carrying the football 10 times last week, of 28 total team carries. It's fair to expect Kenyon Drake to see an increased rate of snaps and opportunities in a negative game script, and Gus Edwards to see an increased rate of snaps and opportunities in a positive game script. But that's about the extent of our certainty for this unit this week. Finally, the Ravens have targeted the running back position only 52 times this season, the fifth lowest in the league. 
The matchup on the ground yields a well below average 4.16 net adjusted line yards metric against a Pittsburgh defense holding opposing backfields to just 4.16 yards per carry. Wide receiver Devin DuVernay played the highest snap rate of any Ravens wide receiver this season last week at 94%. Furthermore, he has played 78% or more of the offensive snaps in all three games since Baltimore's Week 10 bye after playing more than 66% of the team's offensive snaps only once over the first nine games of the season. As in, DuVernay is starting to see enough snaps to provide ample upside considering his athletic profile. Mark Andrews totaled just under 500 yards receiving and three touchdowns in the five games last season in which Tyler Huntley played more than 80% of the offensive snaps and continues in a near-every-down role this season. The only other pass catcher to play more than 35% of the offensive snaps last week, veteran deep threat Deshaun Jackson was at 35%, was Demarcus Robinson at 76%. This is still a team that operates primarily from heavy personnel alignments, and by primarily, I mean nearly every offensive snap. But we're seeing far less reliance, or trust in, the tertiary options recently, keeping Andrews, DeVernay, and Robinson on the field at increased rates. When you consider that Tyler Huntley attempted no less than 31 pass attempts in any of the five games last season where he played the majority of the game, and that he then came in and attempted 32 passes in just over three quarters last week, the newfound concentration of the Ravens' pass catchers begins to add a bit of intrigue here, particularly considering the matchup with a pass-funnel Steelers defense. How Pittsburgh will try to win The Steelers sit at a below-average 57.96% pass rate on the season but have really dialed it back over the previous three games, during which they have passed on just 51.5% of their offensive plays. That said, two of those games came against the lost Colts and the run-heavy Falcons, with the third game in that span coming in a home loss to the Bengals, where Pittsburgh attempted 42 passes to just 24 rush attempts. The other large piece of the puzzle is their pace of play which combines to give us a clearer picture of how Pittsburgh is trying to win games and how they approach games when forced in a different direction. The Steelers rank right around league average in first-half pace of play, 17th, but rank 9th in pace of play in the second half, 11th in overall pace of play, and 11th in pace of play with the score within 6 points. All of that comes together to highlight a team that would like to remain run-balanced when afforded the opportunity, but is not afraid to open things up when the game environment calls for it. A back-and-forth environment, or when playing from behind. Like the Ravens, the Steelers have run above-league average total offensive plays in each of their last six games. After running an offense based in 11 personnel to start the season, the Steelers have begun to mix in increased rates of 12 personnel following the trade of Chase Claypool at the trade deadline, which has meant increased snaps for blocking tight ends Zach Gentry and Connor Hayward. Lead back Najee Harris has seen his role fluctuate wildly all season, with snap rates ranging from 92% to 49% in healthy games. Throw out his 29% snap rate in Week 12 when he left with an injury. Since their Week 9 bye, Harris has a game of 92% of the offensive snaps and two games in the 60-66% to range, with the fourth being the outlier injury game. That said, Harris has yet to eclipse 100 yards rushing and has seen his once-elite pass game involvement all but dry up this year, only 37 targets through 12 games played, 
well, 11 and a half games played. Furthermore, he has just four of 12 games with more than 20 running back opportunities. Jalen Warren is the established change of pace back, while Benny Snell is also on hand to handle any work required. The matchup on the ground yields an average 4.13 net adjusted line yards metric against a Baltimore defense holding opposing backfields to just 3.81 yards per carry, 5th best, and 20.4 DK points per game, 6th best. The shift to increased rates in 12 personnel hasn't really influenced the snap rates of the top two options in the pass game, as Deontay Johnson and George Pickens have each maintained relatively stable snap rates throughout the season. Deontay is at 91.3% snap rate and 99.1% route participation, while Pickens is at 78.7% snap rate and 91% route participation. Behind those two has been a veritable mess, with all of Steven Sims, Gunnar Olszewski, and Miles Boykin soaking up the remaining snaps at the wide receiver position. While tight end Pat Fryermuth is in a route 72% of the time, his deep A dot, 4.3, fourth at the position, and targets per route run rate, 26.9%, fifth at the position, have kept him an integral part of this offense through the air. Finally, the Ravens have lowered their blitz rates this season, which has helped them to force the third lowest defensive A dot at just 6.5 yards, which aligns well with the areas of the field the Steelers will be looking to attack, but is also highly likely to keep their pass offense one-dimensional. Likeliest Game Flow Vegas clearly expects this game to carry less than league average total offensive plays run from scrimmage. Both teams are in the top seven in average time of possession per game and less than optimal conditions for fantasy goodness, tied with Bucks 49ers for the lowest game total on the slate at just 37 points. But I'm currently seeing a wider range of outcomes from both the game environment and individual pieces from potentially concentrated offenses here. Both teams have hovered right around league average in PROE for both the season and over the previous month of play. That notion is also amplified by the fact that this will be the first of two meetings between these two division rivals, and we know that divisional games typically carry an extremely wide range of outcomes. As in, I would be equally as unsurprised if this game ended 14-10 or if it finished 35-31. Adding to the wide range of potential outcomes is the fact that the Ravens are likely to have to be the ones to push the game environment as the Steelers have been forced to primarily work the short to intermediate areas of the field through the air while starting running back Najee Harris has all of five breakaway runs this season. That said, the Ravens possess the personnel to do just that. Furthermore, the Steelers have shown a propensity to increase their pace of play and pass rates when trailing in the second half this season. While not the likeliest scenario, there are paths to this game opening up quite a bit. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Jaguars at the Titans kick off Sunday, December 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Pappy This is a poor game environment. The Titans' offensive line has performed below expectations. The Titans are likely to run even though the Jaguars are weaker against the pass. 
Travis Etienne is still underpriced, but this is a brutal matchup. How Jacksonville will try to win. The 4-8 Jaguars come into Week 14 on the heels of a 40-14 drubbing at the hands of the scarier-than-people-think, when healthy, Lions. As bad as the Jags were last week, they've played close games all year and have an unlucky-looking point differential, negative 14 for their record. For comparison, the other 4-8 teams, Colts, Panthers, and Cardinals, have negative 89, 36, and 57 point differentials respectively. It's easy to think of the Jags as a bad team, but Doug Peterson has made them better and they're performing close to the middle of the road in most metrics, with one glaring weakness, pass defense. The Jaguars play at a moderate pace, 13th overall, but that number is misleading since they want to play faster, 9th situation neutral, if the game is close. The Jags rank in the top 10 in pace in every metric except if they have a lead, 31st in pace, when they take their foot way off the gas. The discrepancy in the Jags' pace makes them a highly game-flow-dependent team. The Jags will play like a top-10 pace team if the game is close or they're losing, but they turn into the Titans when they're winning. The Titans have been monsters against the run, first in DVOA, and susceptible through the air, 22nd DVOA. Profiling is one of the league's clearest pass funnels. As an OWS reader, this analysis should come as old hat. The Titans face the highest pass rate above expectation in the league. The relative weakness of the Titans' defense is obvious to anyone paying attention, and their opponents can figure out it makes sense to avoid the Titans' ferocious run D. Expect more of the same from Peterson, with a focus on playing quickly and passing, unless the Jags take a two-score lead. How Tennessee will try to win the 7-5 Titans come into Week 14 firmly leading the sorry AFC South, three-game lead plus tiebreakers, despite being on a two-game losing streak. The most interesting news coming out of Tennessee this week was the firing of general manager John Robinson, who took over the job in 2016. John's dismissal is strange for several reasons. First, it happened mid-season on a winning team. Second, the Titans' worst record in any year since Robinson took over is 9-7, and seven, and they've made the playoffs four of six seasons during his tenure. Third, there appears to be no scandal, with everyone speaking highly of Robinson and wishing him well. Lastly, the timing is suspicious, since this happened right after A.J. Pay That Man Brown took his revenge. Did Robinson get canned as punishment for trading Brown? Does he still have a job if Brown doesn't go off last week? We may never know unless more information comes to light, but either way, the departure of their GM is more likely to impact future Titans teams than this one. The Titans play at a snail's pace, 32nd overall, and are dead last in the league in tempo. This isn't a fluke, as the Titans crawl when the game is close, 32nd in situation neutral pace, and they are also dead last in second half pace. Their high watermark for speed comes with a lead, 26th in pace when ahead. No matter how you read the Titans' pace splits, they always spell slow. The Jags have been above average against the run, 13th in DVOA, and eviscerated through the air, 31st in DVOA. The Jags present as a bad defense overall, but one that is more of a pass funnel, which doesn't set up well for the Titans. Vrabel has a we-do-what-we-do mentality rather than a we-attack-your-weakness mentality, which means despite the relative weakness of the Jags' defense being the pass, 
the Titans are unlikely to change their approach on offense. Ryan Tannehill has thrown under 30 passes seven times this season, out of 10 games started, with 36 passing attempts being his ceiling this year. The Titans' M.O. has been consistent for several years, and there is nothing about this week that is going to change how they play. Likeliest Game Flow The Titans are negative four favorites in a game with a low total of 41 that opened at 42 and was quickly bet down. Put those together and you can see how this game has relatively few paths to smashing its total. The Titans are the better team, making the most likely game flow one where they play Titans football. That means a lot of running, clock grinding, and time of possession. The Jags' defense is stronger against the run than the pass, but they can still be had on the ground, meaning they should be just good enough to make things tough on the Titans' running game without being able to shut it down and force them to the air. The Jags are likely going to pass like everyone else does against the Titans, but their pace stats show if they somehow take an early lead, they're likely to slow down. That would still turn this game into a close, slow grinder. The most likely game flow has the Titans taking a lead and running the ball throughout, with the Jags hanging around, but never really threatening to win. Chiefs at Broncos. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 4.05 p.m. Eastern, over under 44. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. This game is a matchup of the highest scoring team in the NFL, Kansas City, against the lowest scoring team in the NFL, Denver. Much of this game's tempo and flow will be determined by how the Chiefs decide to attack, to play to their strength, passing, or attack their opponent's weakness, rushing. Denver's offense continues to set new standards for ineptness. How Kansas City will try to win. Kansas City is tied with the Bills for the lead in the AFC with a 9-3 record. However, the Bills own the tiebreaker thanks to their head-to-head victory in Week 6. Home field advantage in the playoffs is a big deal, and the Chiefs can't afford to mess around with a divisional road game against an opponent with a very good defense. While the storylines this season about Russell Wilson's cringeworthy habits and comments and awful on-field play have taken control, the reality is that Denver continues to be a tough out from a real football perspective. Seven of Denver's nine losses this season have been by seven or fewer points, and they have made life difficult for opponents and viewers alike during the long 13-week journey to get to this point. From a philosophical standpoint, the Chiefs will have some choices to make. Kansas City throws the ball at a higher rate than any other team in the league, but is facing an elite pass defense and subpar rush defense in this matchup. Likewise, the Broncos' offense has scored 20 points only one time this season, meaning that the Chiefs' barrier for winning is relatively low as long as they don't gift Denver with turnovers and free points. Head coach Andy Reid will have to decide if he wants to play to his team's strengths or attack the weakness of his opponent. While the Chiefs are unlikely to lean entirely on the run, a more balanced approach is certainly viable, especially with the emergence of Isaiah Pacheco as a consistent runner. The Broncos' pass defense is legit, but they have also not faced very many high-level passing offenses outside of the Chargers. Likewise, much of the strength of Denver's pass defense lies on the perimeter, while the Chiefs feature Travis Kelsey and other ancillary receivers, running backs, tight ends, and gadget wide receivers, more than most teams. This is all to say that while Denver's pass defense is unlikely to allow Chiefs passing game explosions, the Chiefs are well-equipped to still move the ball through the air. How Denver Will Try to Win If you want a good laugh, go back and read some of the puff pieces that came out about the Denver offense in the offseason. Things like fast tempo, letting Russ cook, opening things up, and dynamic chunk plays were discussed at great length by writers, reporters, players, and coaches alike. Fast forward to today, and the Broncos are middle of the pack in tempo, 
and throw the ball at a rate below expectation, while Wilson ranks 15th in the league in average depth of throw among QBs who have played 10-plus games. The Broncos' defense has done its part, as the Broncos would have a 9-3 record if they had managed to score just 20 points in each game this year, but the offense has fallen flat on its face. Play calling has been predictable, conservative, and vanilla, while Wilson has looked lost and confused repeatedly throughout the season. Enter Week 14 opponent Kansas City, who leads the NFL in scoring. The Broncos' defense is showing signs of cracking lately, allowing 23 and 22 points to the Panthers and Raiders recently, after allowing 20 points in only one of their first nine games. Additionally, there has to be a demoralizing aspect for a defense at some point when their efforts are not rewarded with victories, and they are now eliminated from playoff contention. All of this is to just say that the Broncos will try to win this game with an early conservative approach leaning on their running game and defense as they try to contain Mahomes and company. However, that strategy is more likely to be exposed now than it may have been earlier in the season or against most opponents. We should expect the Broncos to use some play-action concepts and short-area passing to relieve pressure on Wilson, who has been sacked more than any other QB in the NFL. Kansas City's defense has historically been very strong against perimeter receivers and more susceptible in the middle of the field, which plays to the strengths of the Broncos' top two pass catchers at this point in the season, Jerry Judy and Greg Dulcich. Unfortunately, Wilson has been his worst in the middle and intermediate part of the field, with a passer rating of just 41.7 on throws of 10 to 20 yards downfield in the inner third of the field. Likeliest Game Flow The Broncos' offense is so broken and conservative that it is extremely unlikely they will do anything to take control of this game. This means that a close game or one in which Kansas City is in control is most likely. The Chiefs have the most pass-heavy offense in the NFL and play at the third-fastest situation neutral pace in the league. They do, however, slow things down when games get out of hand as they rank only 10th in the league in overall pace of play. This week, the Chiefs face a Broncos defense that has surrendered 20 or more points in only 3 of 12 games this season. The most likely game flow here is something similar to the Chiefs game against the Rams a couple weeks ago where the Chiefs gradually built a lead and the Rams simply stayed conservative and continued playing solid defense keeping Kansas City from having a large scoring outburst, but never really putting the game in question. The Chiefs won that game 26-10, and this game's implied team totals are roughly 27 for Kansas City and 17 for Denver, which seems pretty accurate from a most likely perspective. Panthers at Seahawks. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 4.25 p.m. Eastern. Over under 44.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Carolina enters this game off their bye week and is on a bit of a roll, winning two of their last three games. Seattle has backfield issues that could push them to lean on their highly efficient passing game. Neither defense ranks in the top half of the league against either the run or the pass. The Panthers handed the ball to running backs on 41 of 65 plays in their last game. How Carolina will try to win Despite a 4-8 record and firing their coach early in the season, the Panthers are sneakily still in the playoff hunt as they come out of their Week 13 bye. The Panthers' offense has quietly come to life recently as they have scored 21-plus points in five of their last six games. As a matter of fact, their scoring during that stretch would rank in the top half of the NFL if compared to the league's season-long stats. Considering the negative public perception around this unit, being aware of these recent trends is key in examining them for this week and beyond. If the Panthers can win this game and the Bucks lose their tough road game in San Francisco, Carolina will be within a game of the division lead with all four of their games remaining against teams with losing records. Such is life in the NFC South of 2022. 
Sam Darnold returned as the starting quarterback for the Panthers in Week 12 and led the Panthers to a victory. In that game, the Panthers leaned heavily on their running backs as they had a 63% run rate and controlled the game. For comparison's sake, the Falcons lead the NFL in the season with a 52.4% run rate. This week, the Panthers get a Seahawks defense that has been very forgiving recently, giving up 300-plus yards from scrimmage to Josh Jacobs in Week 11 and breathing life into Cam Akers for his best game of the year in Week 12. On the season, the Seahawks rank 28th in the NFL in yards per carry allowed, and we should expect the Panthers to lean heavily on their strength and the weakness of the Seahawks in this tough road environment. When Darnold does take to the air, expect DJ Moore to be his preferred target. Moore has struggled with Carolina's QB play over the past two seasons, but his best play, by far, has been with Darnold under center. The pair connected for 103 and a touchdown in Week 12, as Moore received a 32% target share. How Seattle Will Try to Win The Seahawks have changed their identity a bit this year and rank 8th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, while also ranking in the top half of the league in situation-neutral pace of play. Those trends could spike this week with the Seahawks' backfield in shambles. Having already lost Rashad Penny for the season, Seattle is likely to be without Kenneth Walker and DJ Dallas for at least this week. That leaves pass-catching specialist Travis Homer and sub-replacement-level fifth-stringer Tony Jones to carry the load for Seattle. The Seahawks threw the ball 39 times last week, compared to only 20 handoffs in a surprisingly close contest against the Rams. The offense at this point centers around the accuracy and efficiency of Geno Smith, particularly with regard to the environment of his dynamic duo of wide receivers in Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. Lockett continues to be a technician in his craft, breaking loose for the occasional big play, but also providing chain-moving capabilities on underneath routes and sitting down in zone coverages. Metcalf's game has evolved as he is more of a threat in the intermediate areas of the field now than he was early in his career, when he was primarily used as a deep threat and had a very small route tree. Carolina also plays zone coverage at the fifth highest rate in the league, something they have in common with the Rams, who lead the league in that category. Considering the dire situation in the backfield, and Homer's pass-catching skill set, as well as the success they had through the air against a similar scheme in Week 13, it would make a lot of sense for the Seahawks to come out firing through the air. We should expect a pass-first game plan from Seattle, and then they can throttle down if and when they are able to build a lead. Likeliest Game Flow This game is, in my opinion, one of the sneakiest games of the week from a scoring upside perspective. The Seahawks so clearly have a reason to lean heavily on their passing game and the personnel to do so effectively. Meanwhile, the Panthers' offense has been more than serviceable lately and can easily score enough points against this struggling Seattle defense to keep the Seahawks from getting comfortable and taking the air out of the ball. Put simply, Seattle just gave up 23 points to a Rams offense whose personnel is basically a preseason unit at this point in the season. Consider the fact that the Rams scored only 3 points in the first 56 minutes on Thursday night against the Raiders' league-worst defense, and you can start to understand just how bad this Seattle defense has been recently. The Panthers are likely to come out leaning heavily on the run, and should do so with some effectiveness and put some points on the board. Meanwhile, the Panthers' defense has been solid against some poor offenses this season, but has shown the ability to be feasted upon by higher-level competition. The accuracy of Geno Smith, who leads the league in completion percentage, and the talent of his receiving core makes Seattle unlikely to fail and very likely to move the ball effectively in this game. A similar game to last week's competitive matchup with the Rams could be in store, with both offenses having the potential to exploit the weaknesses of their opponent. Enjoying the game breakdowns? 
Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Bucks at 49ers. Kickoff Sunday, December 11th, 4.25 p.m. Eastern. Over under 37.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. This is a game between two teams that lead their division but are facing a lot of question marks late in the season. The 49ers are down to their third-string quarterback, Brock Purdy, and will have to ride him for the rest of the season. The Bucks are playing off a short week after pulling off a dramatic come-from-behind victory on Monday night. This is a matchup of two very good defenses facing offenses that have many issues, which is shown by this game's second-lowest over-under on the slate. How Tampa Bay will try to win The Bucks rank 6th in the NFL in both situation-neutral pace and pass rate over expectation, yet 27th in the NFL in points per game. This shocking lack of efficiency comes on the heels of the Bucks sporting one of the league's top offenses since Tom Brady arrived in 2020. A big part of the issue has been the offensive line, which has not provided the high level of protection against pass rushes this year that it has in the past and can't get much of a push in the running game. This has forced a lot of Bucks passing game to be focused on the short areas of the field to keep Brady upright and resulted in Tampa Bay ranking bottom three in the NFL by most rushing efficiency metrics. On the surface, this matchup for the Bucks offense is very difficult. The 49ers boast one of the top defensive units in the league and have been stellar in nearly every game this year. The one thing about this matchup for the Bucks is they already can't run the ball, so facing the number one run defense in the league should make it relatively easy for them to bypass even trying in this spot. Leonard Fournette and Rashad White are splitting the running back duties now, and the duo should see a healthy dose of targets in this game after combining for 12 receptions against the Saints on Monday night. Also, stud-wide receiver Chris Godwin appears at or near full strength again in his return from last season's ACL tear, but his role has changed to basically an extension of the running game as he is bottom 10 in the NFL in average depth of target for receivers. Further highlighting the lack of big plays from the Bucks, red zone and deep threat specialist Mike Evans has not scored a touchdown since week 4. The Bucks will likely have to pass often in this game, and that passing will primarily be short area work trying to matriculate the ball down the field as they will become relatively predictable for their opponent, who also has some stellar pass rushers. The 49ers play primarily zone coverage, meaning Godwin, the running backs, and the tight ends should be heavily targeted in the short areas of the field as they try to sit in holes in coverage for easy completions. While the 49ers' pass defense was beaten handily by the Chiefs and had some struggles containing the Dolphins last week, the Bucks' passing game is no longer on the same level as those teams and will likely struggle to string together first downs. How San Francisco will try to win the 49ers rank 29th in the NFL in pace of play and 24th in pass rate, and those numbers come with an experienced, trusted quarterback under center. Now that Jimmy Garoppolo is out for the season, and the 49ers are left with a 7th-round rookie quarterback, it would seem likely they would play even slower and run the ball more. That being said, Purdy played almost the entire game against the Dolphins last week, and the 49ers led for 3.5 quarters, yet he threw the ball 37 times. Most of his throws were of the shorter variety, and he was not exactly pushing the ball downfield, and when he was, he missed a few throws that could have been nice plays, but the play calling at least showed some trust from the coaches, which is a positive sign. This week, the 49ers face a Tampa Bay defense, which has only given up 17 points per game in its last four games. The Bucks ranked top 10 in the NFL in Football Outsiders DVOA metrics against both the run and the pass, indicating that there really isn't an easy path to move the ball against them. 
The Bucks' defense is built on speed, however, so I would expect Kyle Shanahan's scheme to focus on using that strength against them, with a lot of counterplays, play action, and screens. The Bucks rank 10th in the NFL in blitz percentage, and facing a raw rookie quarterback, we can expect them to throw the kitchen sink at him. Christian McCaffrey will be the engine of this offense, for as long as his body can handle it, and Debo Samuel's health appears to be improving, so I would also think his workload will be relatively high going forward, especially with Elijah Mitchell on IR. Last week, Samuel missed practice Wednesday and Thursday before doing very little on Friday. He went on to have 10 targets and 4 carries against the Dolphins on Sunday. This week, he has had limited practices on both Wednesday and Thursday, with signs that he could have a full session Friday. Creative play calling to create space for playmakers with Purdy operating like a point guard who gets the ball to them through handoffs or passes of 10 yards or less seems like the clear approach the 49ers will likely take this week. The Bucks play a lot of zone coverage and rely on their ability to make tackles in space, but that can be a dicey proposition against the 49ers' elite skill position players. Likeliest Game Flow The Bucks have scored more than 22 points only once this season, and that was in a Week 4 loss to the Chiefs, where Kansas City jumped out to a huge lead early and played soft defense most of the remainder of the game. As mentioned before, the Bucks are likely to struggle stringing together drives and haven't made many big plays, while the 49ers' defense is no joke. On the other side, the 49ers are protecting a young, vulnerable quarterback and are already a run-first team that plays with a methodical pace of play. The recipe that the ingredients I described gives us is a defensive battle that would need some serious defensive breakdowns and or explosive plays with the ball in the hands of playmakers in order to get going. If either team was to get out to a decent lead, things could go sideways in a hurry as the 49ers defense would likely tee off on the Bucks if they had to be more aggressive down the field, and the Bucks defense would also likely give Purdy fits if he had to play from behind with a sense of urgency. The likeliest game flow is a tight, low-scoring battle with both teams leaning on their defense and trying not to give away the game by letting their opponent get easy points. However, the volatility of both offenses leaves the door open for either team to run off with this one and for complete meltdowns in those situations.